to the passage before us, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. And I'll read that passage now, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 10 today. The Apostle Paul continues in the letter, and he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always remember us kindly, longing to see us just as also we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God because of you? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Our God, we pray now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, uh, that this text, which may to some of us seem obscure and uh, unclear really how it applies to us, we pray that you would grant a supernatural clarity and even an interest in what you've revealed in this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would guide my explanations and even how I, what directions I give from this passage. We pray that you, O Lord, would be in the midst of your people, that your spirit would be active in the midst of your people, that we would not go away from here unchanged, uh, but that we would go with your truth in our hearts in such a way that influences how we live. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of a narrative section in 1 Thessalonians. This letter is perhaps the most relational and has possibly the most narrative of any letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote, wrote quite a bit of the New Testament scriptures, and many of those are, are letters. They're letters from him to specific people. And so why I keep bringing this up, the context and who these people were, is because we can't really access the truth embedded in this text unless we understand something about the, the situation in which Paul gave this word and the Holy Spirit speaking through him as well. And so just to remind you briefly of that, this church in Thessalonica had been planted le- probably less than a year before the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. It was a new church in a major city center in the Greco-Roman world, a very important strategic location. Um, It was not a small town. It was a big city. And Paul had experienced persecution there from both the Jews and the Gentiles in the city. And so he had this rich but compressed season of ministry with the church, but persecution forced him to leave before he was ready. Some of us went through uh, Fundamentals of the Faith class this last year. Well, Paul wasn't able to finish the Fundamentals of the Faith with the church. And so since he's been separated from them, he, he's had this anxiety over them. What, what is the state of their faith? How are they doing 
as a result of all these persecutions and pressures. And so he writes them this letter, one, to strengthen their relationship, and that's really the section we're in now. He's trying to, to remind them of their relationship and their tie that they have in the gospel. And to do that, the first chapter is his thanksgiving for the church, and he's commending them, encouraging them. And then chapters 2 and 3, he's recounting their history together. And he's saying, remember how I was with you. I remember how I served you as an apostle, how I was selfless, how I was gentle, but also how I was bold and set an example for you in those ways. And then he explains why it is he's been delayed. And behind all the, the physical reasons, we, we've seen that Satan was actually the one hindering him from returning to the church. And then the last time, several weeks ago, we looked at this passage in chapter 3, 1 to 5, where Paul explained why he sent Timothy. So he sent Timothy to encourage them. He was worried that they would succumb to the affliction. So, and so even though he couldn't return, he sent the next best thing, Timothy, his protege, to strengthen them. And he reminded them affliction and persecution is just inevitable. Not every day, maybe, but at some point in the Christian life, that's a reality that we face. For following Christ, that just goes up against the values of the world, and we have hardships because of that. But now we get to the present moment. So Paul writing this letter in the present moment, Paul brings us up to that moment, and he says, but now, right, we finally get to the now, and now Timothy has come to us from you. And so we see that Paul wrote this letter as a direct response of Timothy's report to him. Timothy had good news about the church. They had not rejected the Apostle Paul. They hadn't been disillusioned by Paul, which could have been a fear of his. They were also keeping fast to the faith. They were holding to the faith. They weren't succumbing to the pressures of their culture. And so here, it's quite a unique section. Again, it's not a section where there's all these pithy commands. Do this, don't do that. Or even doctrinal, like deep doctrine. Like the book of Romans, we get way down deep into the great doctrines of the faith. Here, it's, it's just an outburst of thanksgiving for the church. When Timothy came to me from you, I burst out into thanksgiving. And in fact, I'm just going to record my explosion of thanksgiving here in the letter. And so we think, well, what, what is the impact? What impact should that have on us? What can we learn from, from Paul? What truth does the Holy Spirit want us to be impacted by here? And we see, well, in the most general sense, Paul is animated He's given fresh vitality, a fresh lease on life because he's what, what he's heard from other believers. And so to get your mind thinking on the subject, I want to ask you, what makes your life worth living? Or in other words, what, what would motivate you to express this level of joy or thanksgiving? So, I mean, I know all of us would say, well, of course, that the church would flourish and that other believers would grow in the faith and unbelievers would come to know Christ. <clears throat> but, I mean, is that really what you rejoice in? <laughs> Maybe a financial windfall. If that were to happen, that might, you might say that, but it's another thing when things actually happen. Right? What makes life worth living for the, for the believer, for the Christian? If you're a new believer especially, you, you've probably sensed new desires and new instincts. And you're trying to figure out what, 
what is really the core of the Christian life? What is it all about? Uh, I don't find fulfillment in the things I used to find fulfillment in. I mean, the business is going great, home is okay, but it's not fulfilling. It's, it's not fulfilling. I sense that there's something else that I need to be seeking to striving for, strive for because I'm, frankly, discontent in the things that I'm pursuing, the things I used to pursue. And so the main point I want to set before you today is that God has designed you as a Christian to live for other believers, to live for other believers. So he's rewired you. He's given you a new heart. That new heart has different desires. So it shouldn't be surprising if we lack fulfillment in things we used to pursue. And there are four ways that God has designed you or rewired you to live for other believers, especially. And the first is concern. So you now have new concerns as a Christian. In verse 6, we see that, that Paul was concerned for the church. He says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. We all look for good news, right? We all desperately, desperately want to hear good news. But what was good news for Paul? I mean, this man was pitiful. If you looked at his life and you weren't a, a religious person, you weren't a Christian, you didn't care for Christianity whatsoever, and you just analyzed the Apostle Paul's life and the, the amount of fulfillment and nobility inherent in his life as an apostle, you would laugh. You think, what a joke. Who would live like that? Who would live like that? What fulfillment could there possibly be traveling around dirt poor getting attacked just to make a few disciples to your philosophy or your new religion. I mean, Paul, in spite of all of that, he was looking for the good news of other believers and how they were faring in the Christian life. And he really looked for two things. When, when he looked at the people that claimed to follow Christ and he checked in on them, what was he looking for? What were the vital signs, right? The mother wants to check in on her infant child, make sure he's still alive. What does she look for? Is he still, is his back still going up and down a little? Is he still breathing? Oh, he's still breathing. Okay, I can, I can relax. Similarly, Paul looked for two vital signs in Christians, and that is faith and love. And these are twins. Faith and love always come up together in Scripture. And they're, they're, I say they're twins because you'll never find them inseparable. Maybe you knew twins in, in middle school or elementary school, and they just always went around together, dressed the same way, did the same things. Well, it's the same way with faith and love. Where you, where you find faith, you'll find love. Where you find real godly faith, you'll find godly love, you'll find faith also. Faith in Scripture, and I just want to remind you, we can't emphasize this enough, especially in a new church. Faith is not a general abstract belief system. It's not just an abstract connection to some sort of deity or, or higher power or higher being, but it's faith in a person. It's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We could go to many passages to, to prove that. When, when Scripture says faith, especially in the New Testament, it's referring to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the context of that faith is the great need of the world. Sin is our great problem. Uh, we are fallen away from God. We've rebelled against God. We're no, n under the, born under the curse of the law. 
worthy of judgment. But God in his mercy has sent his son into the world, born of a virgin so that he is not, not born under the curse, born a perfect man, truly man and truly God, living under the law perfectly, keeping the law. And then Christ took our sin upon himself and said it is finished on the cross. And he accomplished redemption for all the people that God chose to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus rose again from the dead, proving that he was capable of giving eternal life to anyone that believed in him. You can't trust a dead savior, can you? Although every other religion does. And now the call to really participate and obtain the blessings of this salvation is repent and believe in Christ, to turn in holy hatred of your sin toward Christ in repentance and to commit to him. And so that's faith. Faith is knowing the facts, believing those facts are true, but then also resting upon those facts, trusting in the person and work of Christ for your salvation. But many people say that. And so Paul could say, well, that's great that you all will sign the doctrinal statement of the church, you know, First Baptist Church of Thessalonica. That's great, but I'm looking for something more than that, more than just you, you like listening to this kind of sermon, more than just you like the doctrine I preach. He also looked for love, right? The twin of faith. Faith comes first, but real saving faith is always followed by love. And so love is always directed first and foremost toward, God, toward God's people, toward Christ's people. Because when you think about it, how do we love Christ? Is he here? Can we, can we give him money when he needs money as women did in his earthly ministry? Well, no. He's in heaven. Um, can we walk with him and talk with him? Can we, can we speak to him? Can we worship him personally? In the physical sense, the way the woman did when she poured out her perfume, her alabaster vial of extremely expensive perfume to anoint him. We can't do things like that anymore. So how do we show love for Christ? It's through his people, isn't it? It's through his people. And so you love Christ by loving the people whom Christ is indwelling by his spirit. And it's toward the saints. Think about this. If you're a Christian, you have these instincts. That you have a concern for the faith and love of other Christians around you. Imagine that you had two friends. And you probably do have two kinds of friends. One is the suffering friend. So the friend that may be in the hospital. That may have everything going wrong for them in the outward sense. The friend who has lost all their possessions. Maybe someone has gone after them legally and taken everything. Maybe they're sick. They've been given a, a fatal diagnosis and there's not a whole lot to look forward to in their life. And then you visit this friend and your friend says to you, don't, don't worry about me. My sin is forgiven. Christ is my savior. I know that in a very short time, I'm going to enter into glory. I'm going to enter into glory. And that hope, it just swallows up all these difficulties. And even in these difficulties, I know God's working in them. He's working in them to perfect me and probably to do something great 
through my sufferings to other people. Would you pity that person? You would still sympathize with them. You'd still sympathize with them. But you'd, I, I think if you're a Christian, you'd think, I would rather, that makes me far more encouraged to walk away from that kind of conversation, even though everything else is going wrong in their life, than someone else. Maybe another kind of friend, the friend in prosperity. A friend in prosperity who has everything they need, and they say they're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, sure. Oh, when was the last time you went to church? Well, I don't know. Uh, a long time ago. I've been to all the churches and... You know, I'm kind of between churches at the moment. They start getting bitter about every relationship they have. You, your conversations with them, oh, they're not really about faith or Christ or Scripture. It's just about all the people that bother them. They're bitter. They also believe strange things about Jesus. They, they believe strange things about the Lord and about Scripture they come to you with, if they do say anything about Scripture, it's some weird thing about numbers and calculating the number of, of such and such an event or something, or, or some obscure doctrine that maybe someone should look into, but they certainly are putting the cart before the horse by devoting so much time to that. I would guess that you would be very concerned and anxious for that person. You'd walk away from that kind of interaction thinking that person, even though they have everything, I feel sorry for them. They're sick. They're so, at best, their soul is sick and they need help. They need the Lord's mercy in their life to, to wake them up. And so that's what Paul looked for. And I would encourage all of you, as you seek to be a blessing to the other people in this room and in this church, to look for that. To, I mean, ask about the physical concerns of life, of course, but, but also to think about faith and love. How are we progressing in the faith? Are we growing in our knowledge of God and what God has revealed? Are we loving one another according to our giftedness? And that will look different uh, for many of us. But Paul was also encouraged by their fellowship. He says, You always remember us kindly, longing to see us just as also we long to see you. And so Paul is not being narcissistic here. It's not that he's saying, oh, good, I'm glad I still have friends in Thessalonica. Well, he derived some comfort from that, but he, he knew that if they were estranged from him, they also might become estranged to the gospel that he preached. So that's why he was so concerned and even why he wrote letters to the Galatians and the Corinthians, churches that were way off the rails, we would be tempted to think, oh, those are false churches, but they weren't false. They were just a mess. And Paul, he didn't say, well, you know, they're apostates. See you later. He pursued them. He pursued them because he knew that if they rejected him and soured toward him, that that, that couldn't be totally divorced from their belief in Christ because Paul just preached what Christ told him to preach. And that should be a big concern for us when we separate from other people. That's why division is such a big deal in the church. That we shouldn't feel the freedom to just split over things or sour toward one another uh, when we have a grudge. That, that it really should take quite a lot when it gets to that point of division among people that profess to know Christ. And if you have friends that are detached from the church uh, and are wandering around and that don't have good relationships with a local church, I would, con I would 
I would want to convince you to think of that person as probably unsaved. Probably unsaved. It's just, it's hard, it's hard to defend that, that someone can just be doing fine. They're doing fine, but they have no vital relationship with God's people. Uh, are they loving Christ? Well, how do you love Christ? Do you love his people? Where are Christ's people found? Well, in the local church. 99.9% of them are in the local church. And so that might just be instructive for some of us who have families that say, oh, I'm Christian and, and all that. If they're wandering, uh, they're at best very, very sick, again, and in need of your, your ministry. But let's move on now to verse 7. First, we saw that God has designed us to have new concerns as Christians, concerns for the faith and love of each other. But in verse 7 and 8, we see that God has designed us to derive comfort from different things also. You see that? He says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, so in spite of all the affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So we see here that God has designed you as a born-again believer to be comforted by the perseverance of other Christians. The perseverance of other Christians. Comfort here, um, it requires a little bit of explanation. There's There's this difference in nuance from the English word comfort. We think of comfort and we think of a parent soothing their injured child. Something like that. Consolation, consoling them. But the word comfort in scripture, it's the same word for exhort or to encourage. And so it it refers to infusing someone to be infused with fresh courage is more the idea of comfort in scripture. And so God has designed you to receive comfort from a different source as a believer. He's designed you to get wind in your sails from different things, from the witnessing the perseverance of other Christians. That's why we can hear someone talk about their trials, but how they're standing up under those trials, and you feel, you feel encouraged by that, by just hearing that. That's part of your new instincts as a Christian, and that's the way God has designed it, because God wants you to live for other believers, and part of that is that's often enough. If everything's going wrong in your life, but the people around you, the believers around you are persevering and they're enduring and they're remaining faithful, that's often enough to prop you up and to propel you forward. This is in stark contrast to the world. So the world sinks under suffering and affliction. They sink, right? When they get a diagnosis or when they are let go from their job or when they're Um, their family falls apart. It's just, that's the end. That's it. I'm in despair. Some people just try to meander through life unthinkingly because they're not willing to really face the reality of their life. If there's no eternity, if this is all there is, what, what a depressing existence to live in the fallen world. And I'm like you. It's not that it's not that I live in some happy land that you don't live in. (laughs) We all live in the same fallen world. We all live in the same fallen world. But consider how much Paul suffered. Probably more than we have ever suffered or will suffer. He grew up with uh, probably the most prestigious pedigree in the, Israel, in the Jewish world. Uh, he was a rising star in Judaism. He says that. He had the equivalent of a double, triple PhD. 
um, looked up to, esteemed, probably very financially stable, lots of friends. And, and where, did he, where did he go from that? Christ appeared to him, and at that moment in his life, he says that he suffered the loss of all things. He lost everything. He lost his friends, at least his influential friends. He probably lost a lot of his money, even though he doesn't mention that explicitly. It seems to imply that he was, he was not a financially independent person um, after his conversion and after he accepted the call of apostleship. He received, he was received hostility from both Jews and Gentiles. He was commissioned to preach, to preach a message that uh, both of these groups hated. You know, the Jews, they counted on their good works to earn ma- salvation from God. They believed that their obedience to the law would be enough to earn eternal life for them. And Paul said, you need to repent of your dead works because those works cannot obtain anything from God. God requires absolute perfection to give you eternal life. And you need to humble yourself and admit that someone, the Son of God specifically, needed to die for you. And so you're such, you're so unworthy of eternal life that it required the Son of God to be a substitute for your sin. And only by believing in him, that's your only hope for eternal life. The Jews hated that because that was offensive to their pride, their pride. The Gentiles, or the Greeks and Romans, that's just what I mean by Gentiles, they also hated his message, but for different reasons. They hated it because it was foolish. They, they loved philosophy. They loved, you know, you may know someone like this. They, they like philosophy, but it's more of a toy. They like toying with it. And they like blending everything, put everything in a blender, blend it up. And I have my own mixture and you can have yours. We can talk about it, have a good time. Uh, but ultimately, I'm in charge of my own fate and destiny and what I want to believe in and not. And Paul said, you need to throw all that away. That I'm preaching a savior that demands that you smash all of your philosophies and all of your false gods. And Christ is not, he's incompatible. He is totally incompatible with the pantheon of your gods. They hated that. That's not a surprise. But Paul suffered the loss of all things, but yet he was so fulfilled. He was so fulfilled as a person, as a believer. And I think that's why this, the Holy Spirit has recorded his response here, is we want to hear firsthand from someone, from a Christian who's fulfilled, who's really f- pursuing God's will and, and reaping the benefits of that. And there are benefits. We want to be devoted to God's glory, first and foremost, in obedience, whether we feel like it or not. But at the same time, there is a real fulfillment that we experience when we serve God. And God can give you the same kind of joy, the same kind of fulfillment, the same kind of vitality that Paul had in spite of everything else crumbling around you. And so do you want to live life to the fullest? Do you want life to be worth living? Do you want it to have meaning? Do you want to understand why you're still here and why God hasn't just zapped you up to heaven yet? Well, he's left you here for a purpose, right? And first and foremost, he's left you here to devote yourself to the spiritual progress of other believers. And he's gifted you in specific ways to contribute to that. And we're all, we're like members of a body. We don't all have the same function. And so don't be discouraged if 
if you try something and it's not quite, the results aren't quite the same as another person, we're all meant to be working together. And, and I've mentioned this idea of serving one another. And I, I've, I've refrained from really giving a whole lot of specifics because there's just so many practical instructions in the rest of the letter. And so we're, we're nearing that point in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We're, we're, we're about to dive into the, the practical section where we get to the commands. Because there, there really are commands in the Christian life. Do this and don't do that. There is a real place for that. But this is just preparatory. I'll say it again as a preparation for that section when we get to it. That your purpose in still existing in the world is to live for other people. To glorify God. Well, how do you do that? By serving Christ's people. And of course, evangelizing people that don't know Christ yet. Because he still has people out there that haven't yet come to him. But third, let's look at the joy that God has designed you to have as a Christian. So you, you have new concerns, you get comfort from different places as a Christian, but thirdly, you also get joy from different places. And this is different than, than comfort, different from having courage and a willingness to face life. This is a, a deep gladness, being full uh, of joy and happiness in life. And this is the third time in the letter that Paul mentions thanksgiving. Let me just read that, verse 9. He says, what thanks can we render to God? What thanks? So he doesn't say, I thank you, or describe it. He says, the thanks that I, that I ought to give to God is indescribable. It's indescribable. What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God because of you? And so Paul bursts out into joy. He not, not only has the willingness to go on living, right? He says in verse 7, verse 8, now we really live, meaning he's, he's healthy right? in, in the emotional and spiritual sense. He's willing to keep living for God. But we get, we get to this, even more than that, he has this deep joy with which he rejoices before God because of the church. Because of the church. And so what is, your, what is your great desire? What's your, or another way to say it, what's your strongest affection? Strongest affection. If you tell me what your strongest affection is, then I'll tell you, I'll be able to tell you the condition of your soul. Right? What, what moves your heart to this kind of joy? What gives you joy? There are so many people that profess to know Christ that, that will, will kind of be annoyed at you for, for, talk, for asking them or probing a little bit about their faith, whether you know the Lord or not, and what evidences do you have in your life that you really know Christ. And they're almost annoyed. Why would you ask? Well, of course, I believe these things. I'm a, I'm a Christian, just, right? But really what, what proves, one of the many things that will prove someone to be a real Christian is what their affections are, what their desires are. Uh, what lights them up? What gives them joy? What gives them joy? What, what gave the Apostle Paul joy? Look at, the, at verse 9 here. He, he had joy. Um, the joy wasn't, of course, in his earthly possessions or, or his status or recognition or honor. It also wasn't 
just simply his own personal salvation. Notice that too. That he didn't just go wander away in a cave somewhere and pray his whole life in isolation. That the joy he had, it was interconnected with the lives of other believers. Do you see that? He rejoiced before God, not just for his own salvation, but for the salvation of the people he knew and had the privilege of ministering to. Some of us, I know for a fact that multiple people here have children that have wandered far away from God. And I know many more people down south and in my extended family as well, they've wandered away from God. And you think, what? What? It's almost like I've given up on them. It's been so long. And they're so hardened in their sin. And I try to talk to them. And they don't respond. But imagine one day that that person told you that you were right all along for, for talking to them. And that they had come to the point where they had really humbled themselves before God and repented. And that over the next month, months or years, it actually proved itself to be true that they were now bringing forth fruit that's really in keeping with repentance. Wouldn't you have joy for that? I mean, I've, that's happened to me personally. There's been people that I thought God would never save. But then God saved them, and I thought, well, you know, we'll see how this goes in a couple, in a couple years. But all of a sudden, there's these little things. You, you actually did change. Wow, you're, actually, you're still going to church, really? You became a member of your church? What's going on? Right? There is joy. <laughs> there is this kind of joy as a Christian. I can assure you, I can promise you that you'll know this joy as a Christian. Maybe not every single person you pray for. But there'll be some people in your life that you pray for for years and God will save them. He will save them. And you'll have joy and this joy will just swallow up everything else in your life. It's such a deep joy when you get involved with someone else and you see them come to know Christ or even someone that already knew Christ but they're growing in their walk with God. This is the source of our joy. And so let me ask you, what, your, what, what is your joy like? Do you have joy? Do you have any joy in your life as a Christian? Uh, do, you, do you expect it to, to come almost seep into you in your private devotions, right? But you're kind of isolated. You kind of stay on the periphery of things. You don't get super involved with other believers. I can promise you, that is, you give yourself wholeheartedly to serving Christ's people, that God will give you joy in that. That there is a deep joy that you, can't, you won't be able to describe. I don't even know why I'm so joyful at this. Ten years ago, I would never enjoy this. <laughs> but God, would give a, God will give us the same kind of joy here, and that's why the Holy Spirit recorded it. That every Christian is capable of having this kind of joy as we serve one another in fellowship as a church. But then finally, our desires and our prayers have been completely changed. Have been completely changed. And that's in verse 10. Paul says, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face 
and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So notice that Paul prayed for the church. So here he's recording, he's telling them how he's been praying for them, what he's praying for. In the next section, he, has his, he records his prayer actually, starting in verse 11. And the, the world prays, right? I, a lot of people pray, even people that aren't religious in a moment of deep distress, they'll call upon someone or something for, for salvation. And what, what does the world pray for? Well, they pray for health and wealth and prosperity, for God to bless me. Oh, Lord, just bless my day. That's the prayer of the world. Bless my day, Lord, or gods or set of gods or, or whatever. That's the prayer of the world. But the Christian has been rewired. Our desires and our affections, our heart has been changed so that our desires are really for the spiritual progress of other believers. And that comes out in our prayers. Because prayer, if you're wondering how to pray, prayer is just expressing your sincere desires to God. Expressing your desires to God. And as we learn more, those prayers become richer. They become undergirded by more truth. We start praying for things we, we didn't know we should be praying for. But at the very least, all Christians have this instinct that we ought to be praying for the church. And the church, I'm referring to the people in the church, not the, the cathedral building, right? And the officers necessarily, but the people that make up the church, that we pray for them. How should we be praying for the church? Well, Paul prayed night and day. And that's an expression referring to constantly. I think it's fair also to conclude night and day, at least he did pray for the church. And I would recommend that to have a set time, morning and evening, where you pray. And part of that should include other people, have a list of people to pray for. How should we pray? Mumbling through the list of, of names. I have this little, I have three index cards. I have this little list of people. And I just kind of rattle off, you know, bless them, bless them. Help them, help them, bless them, comfort them. How should we be praying? As much as we're able to, we should try to pray earnestly. Earnestly. And that's what Paul says here. He says, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly. That word most earnestly, it's translating a word that's, that's hard to, to capture in English. And it refers to a superabundance or an exceeding of measurement. So it's going beyond measurement. And so night and day refers to the time of his prayer. It's at the very least morning and evening, probably more. But then intensity, how intensely did he pray? Well, it was fervently. It was most earnestly. It was far beyond all measure. So when Paul prayed, if we could, if we could hear his prayers, you might be surprised you might be a little uncomfortable even to hear someone praying like that. Fervently, passionately, maybe even weeping in his prayers. Not just saying, oh, please bless them. But pleading with God multiple times. Multiple times. The word prayer here is a special word that, that calls attention to the begging, pleading, beseeching aspect of prayer. There's, there's several words that are used for prayer in the New Testament. This one calls attention to the, the begging, to the, to the requesting, the pleading, the petitions, the specific petitions we're offering. And so this is how we should be praying for one another, regularly, morning and evening, fervently. And fervently, I think, 
if you struggle to pray fervently, that I would encourage you to remain, just to linger a little bit longer in prayer. Because our hearts are, they're dull. They, they have all sorts of crusts all over them from the business of our day. And it just takes time sometimes to, to shake loose of that and to focus our mind on God and these people we're praying for in our heart. Eventually it does catch up. Eventually it will catch up. And then prayer becomes sweeter. It becomes easier because the whole body is engaged in it. And we are, it's not mechanical and cold. So we have to fight through that. There's a fighting in prayer. We have to fight through that, that coldness and deadness that we often begin at. But what should we be praying for, for the church? He, well, Paul prayed that he would see their faces again. See their faces again. So he was separated from the church he was writing to. And we may be separated from some believers, and there could be a case where you should pray for a reunion with some believer that you want to see again. That's fair. But as a, as a local church, this really calls attention to the need of fellowship and for unity. And so we really want to pray for a, a future unity, for God to preserve the unity of the saints, that we'd continue to see one another's faces, that we wouldn't be scattered on the hills like sheep uh, with no shepherd. But then we should also pray for opportunities to bless one another by helping each other grow in the faith. And he says there, he wants to come to them and complete what is lacking in their faith. So if you read this in isolation, you might think this is a bit of an insult. Right? What is lacking in your, I want to help you because of what you're lacking in your faith, as if the faith they have is not, uh, not enough, it's not sufficient. Uh, maybe they don't know all about the gospel or as much as they need to know to really be saved, but that's not what he's talking about here. The context tells us that what is lacking in their faith is just things they need to grow in. They're real believers, but they have sin. They're real believers, but they're confused. And as we'll see in the rest of the letter, they're confused specifically about the timing of the Lord's return. Because scripture does teach that Jesus Christ will come again and reign on, earth, on the earth. And he'll subdue all his enemies and there will be a kingdom that he will reign over. And so these people have become confused about that. When is it happening? Is it next Tuesday? Is it a year from now? Um, what about these people? They died. I guess they missed it. They're in purgatory or something. Well, they're confused about those things, but they're still Christians. They just need further instruction. And I'll, I'll um, just share with you that there will be some, some topics coming up that are very practical and that there probably will be some conviction over. Uh, there's the idea of sexual immorality in, verse, in chapter 4. Uh, work, having a good work ethic in verse 4. How to grieve when people, that, when believers pass away. Drunkenness. Church leadership, church membership. Counseling one another. There, there's some pretty practical things here. And so you, as you come across these things, and all the Holy Spirit brings conviction to you, you may be tempted to be discouraged. Uh, because you're just so convicted by some of these, these issues. But 
I wouldn't be discouraged. It's not right to, to excuse sin. We don't excuse sin. Sin is still hateful. It's still worth grieving over. But we all have, we all have deficiencies. We're all lacking something in our faith. I mean, that's why we're here, isn't it? Not just you listening to me, but you with one another talking. You have things to share with one another. Some of you are way further along than other people. And even though you're not a, a preacher or a teacher, you have a lot to share to, with people. You, others are maybe less, less advanced in their, their knowledge, but they're skilled at encouraging, at, at urging people along on the road. I mean, that's part of it as well. So we all have things that are lacking in our faith. And that's, on the other hand, it is a, a rebuke to pride. So we could be proud sometimes when we think, well, our church, it doesn't believe this and that and the other. And we're not rolling down the aisle. And we don't believe weird things about the Bible. We're not a cult. Um, we, we have the right doctrine of creation and salvation and the end times. We, you know, we have it together. I have, well, I have it. It's actually me that has it together. Well, Paul would say there, there's things that are lacking in, in all of our faith that we all have a need to grow. We all have a need for further growth. And so what have we learned? What have we learned? Um, I think we've learned at the very least that, that we definitely are different as Christians, that we are wired differently to live differently. We're wired to be driven by different goals, different uh, news that we're looking for. We have different concerns. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, it's that <clears throat> you really will find joy on the, on the road of Christian discipleship. That there really is tremendous joy in it. But oftentimes the commitment comes first. So Jesus, he didn't shy away from that. He said, if you want to follow me, then follow me. But you need to take up your cross and follow me. And he also said the same words I read at the, at the beginning, that he spoke to us so that we'd have his joy made full in ourselves. So the two go together. They're in harmony with one another. You take up your cross, that's a real commitment. There's a real sacrifice to that. But in that road, on the hard road, the narrow road of discipleship, there's also joy that will meet us there and will sustain us. God will sustain us in that. And I would also just end with a, a bit of a warning to you, if you are tempted to isolate yourself, if you're tempted to isolate yourself that's, and you're depressed and you get depressed and discouraged and confused, that's just not an accident. You're designed to, to derive vitality and life and joy in the context of the local church. Especially, I mean, this letter was written to a local church. But Paul, if you ask Paul, well, Paul, all, it's great that there's all these churches. What about the Christians that are not in, in, in a church somewhere, he would have looked at you like you're crazy. What? What are you talking about? Of course Christians are in a church. How can you grow unless you're in a church? How can you serve other Christians unless you're in a church? And so that's really a, an encouragement and a warning a bit when we're tempted to, to drift away and wander and things like that. So let's take it to the Lord in prayer. Take all this to God in prayer and ask us, especially if we're feeling deficient in this and we... We don't have this kind of fulfillment that the Apostle Paul had. We don't really feel this joy that, that Paul had. 
let's take this to God and, and ask for God to, to work in us, to work in us. Our God, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Again, this section has just been, um, all these, these chapters even, all of them has, has been a, a convicting study to see how this man lived and how he spoke with the people he interacted with, how he served them. And what really propelled him forward in life, we all aspire to that. You know that in our heart of hearts, we would live this way. We would be detached from the world. We would live fully for your people, to, to give ourselves for the good of your people. But we are so weak sometimes and we, we all have sin that we are still fighting. We pray that you would help us to put to death the sin that remains in us, uh, that we would experience greater and greater levels of joy as we give more and more to other people and to you. We pray that you would bless all the people here as they seek to find their own giftedness, find their own place in the body of Christ. Please help all of them to find a ministry, whether that's eventually something with children or a mercy ministry, or, or helping set up, um, or even counseling or teaching. We pray that you would direct and guide all the believers here and those who, have, who didn't, uh, weren't able to make it today. We pray that you would unite us all in Christ and that you would propel us forward in the Christian life, that you would meet us with joy as we commit to you and trust you, step out in faith, uh, not really feeling all of what the Apostle Paul is expressing here in the present moment, we pray you would meet us and sustain us by your Holy Spirit to go forward and even to do things that seem too hard for us, too great for us, too, um, too trying, that stretch our abilities. We pray that you would be glorified in all of our lives and in our church uh, especially. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.